What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me is Joe Healy. And in a little bit, we will be joined by UNC Wilmington coach Randy Hood. Going to talk a little bit about the Seahawks here ahead of the 2021 season. But before we do so, I've got to let you know that the Baseball America College Podcast is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry, industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. Check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, it's uh, it's January. It's the first week of January. Ordinarily, we would be at the uh, American Baseball Coaches Association Convention. Instead, that is being held virtually this year. Uh, so hopefully everyone enjoys what the ABCA is putting on uh, in a virtual environment this year. Uh, we are going to keep talking about college baseball here as we get ready for the, the season, which is now a little more than a month away. And it's uh, it's hard to believe, but we've uh, we flipped the calendar finally. Yeah, I made it to 2021. I presume your New Year's Eve was as uneventful as mine was. Uh, the pandemic has obviously forced that to be the case, even if we were the types of people who were, were out and about on New Year's. But uh, I certainly, you know, it was kind of nice there. You know, there was no pressure to, to be doing anything on New Year's. And so I, I was a trooper. I stayed up past midnight, but I will admit that I did not really last too long beyond the midnight hour. Yeah, um, over here, my girlfriend uh, is a, a resident physician, and she was uh, working that week, so midnight was uh, not really a thing that she was going to see, um, so did not worry too much about New Year's Eve this year. It's amazing how, you know, uh, you know the, the true important jobs, uh, like the one she is doing, take uh, precedent over, over anything like, you know, something like celebrating New Year's Eve, and understandably so. I can't even... I've, I've just never been someone who's done, I'm trying to think of even, you know, the, the most eventful thing I've ever done. There was one year I was in Disney World for New Year's Eve, and that was a, oh my God, you talk about just a, a mass of humanity. I've, I've never been in a more crowded place in my life than Disney World on New Year's Eve. It was, it was fun, you know? I mean, it was kind of a cool experience to have. I don't know that I ever want to do it again. Um, I was on a trip with friends of mine who were teachers. And so they had to go either during the summer when it's, you know, 112 degrees outside in Florida or during the Christmas season. So Christmas it was. Um, but it was it a was, uh, pretty, pretty unique experience there. But outside of that, which is, you know, just kind of like a vacation that happened to be over New Year's, New Year's specific things, I. I very, very short list for me in terms of, you know, the most exciting or eventful things that I've done on New Year's Eve, which, you know, I've always kind of viewed as a little bit of an amateur hour type of thing um, in terms of people just going out and doing crazy things like 
trying to blow their hands off with fireworks or, you know, uh, being a little bit sloppy with their drinking. Yeah, it's uh, it's a, a different deal. Um, never, never been a, a big New Year's guy myself. I, I, I prefer the actual day with the uh, with the football. And, and this year there were uh, there's some some good bowl games, some good playoff games. So I uh, I appreciated that most of all. Yeah, I. Yeah, I, I certainly took in a lot of that too. Even though the the two uh, the two playoff games were they were intriguing in their own right, just because while nothing in the Alabama Notre Dame game really surprised us, uh, you know, certainly seeing the Justin Field show and the the Ohio State Clemson game and just kind of the surprise of, oh, Ohio State's just going to run them off the field today. The surprise of that was kind of a um, different. So that was a wrinkle as much as I would have liked it to be a game that that kind of came down to the wire. But um, but yes, I'm with you as we prepare for. College baseball opening day. You and I are in the middle of, of doing some preseason work and research and writing. And you know, I've learned that bowl games and college basketball games too make for really nice background noise when you're trying to get stuff written up. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, we, we've got a lot of work to do in terms of the college preview issues. So anything that you can find, uh, you know, to 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 get some some nice background out of is uh, is a real positive. Uh, so with that in mind, we're going to uh, try and keep this episode maybe a little shorter today. We are two weeks out from our, uh, our our magazine deadline, so Joe and I are diligently working away at the uh, at the college preview issue. Hopefully, uh, we we can put together a uh, another really great magazine uh, as we look ahead to the 2021 season. Um, so yeah, we're going to. A lot of our, our focus for the next few weeks is, is going to be on that, uh, but we're going to keep bringing you the podcast, uh, going to keep bringing you interviews, and, and then we'll um, maybe flip the, the switch here on the podcast to preview mode once the, uh, once the issue goes out again in a couple of weeks. Uh, but until then, we're, uh, we're going to stick with our normal once a week format with uh, our, our regular guests. And like I said, this week, uh, we have UNC Wilmington coach Randy Hood, who is entering his second season in charge of the Seahawks after a long time as as an assistant coach on that staff. And UNCW had a, a very intriguing season in uh, 2020, going 11 and five, sweeping a series at Kentucky. Um, you know, just a, a nice start to the season overall. Unfortunate that we didn't get to see it play out, of course. But now returning. Uh, most of the team, more than most of the team, a lot of the team is coming back. And uh, so another exciting season ahead there in Wilmington. And we'll get into that uh, and more with Coach Hood in a minute. But first, check this out. Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we're excited to have UNCW coach Randy Hood joining us. Uh, coach, this is his second year with the in charge of the Seahawks program, but you've been at Wilmington a, an awful long time uh, as an assistant coach under Mark Scalf, and, and now you're uh, you're getting ready for year two. It's an exciting time here. So the calendar flips to January. I imagine you, like a lot of people around the country, are are starting to really feel like the 2021 season is is uh, approaching in a hurry. Yeah, um, first off, thanks, Teddy. Thanks, Joe, for having me on. Um, appreciate all you guys, what you guys do for college baseball and baseball in general, and professional and amateur side. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm extremely excited. We're excited as a program. Uh, it's been a uh, 
let's just say weird last nine months uh, since March 11th when we stopped back um, last spring. But, uh, you know, we were able to have a great fall as far as um, being able to accomplish what we needed to with all the different protocols and things that um, each campus and around the country is having to deal with. And now just uh, looking forward to hopefully everybody getting back on campus over the next 10 days and uh, get into spring preseason practice. And then before you know it, hopefully February, you know, February 19th gets here and we can uh, start the spring season. I guess, well, one, one place to start is one of the, the areas where you, you had a lot of success last year and looking forward to, to more in 2021 would be on the mound. But you, you lose a guy in Zarian Sharp who was off to an outstanding start in 2020, obviously has a long history in the program. When, when you have a situation like that, even when you return guys throughout the rest of the staff, how do you go about looking to kind of to fill that void? And, and what are you looking for as you look to put that rotation together? Yeah, I mean, uh, we knew that we would probably in a normal year have lost Zarian and probably Landon and probably four or five other guys if the draft that would have played out the normal way it would with, you know, 20 to 30 rounds and then free agency. But with just five rounds and free agency, uh, we were able to, uh, you know, uh, lose one guy. And then we had a couple of recruits that would have probably been picked up in the later rounds as well that we would have to dealt with at that point as well. So uh, we ended up having a, uh, all our freshmen and transfers come in that we're supposed to and then obviously losing Zarian was you know when you lose a guy that uh has the ability to be one of your top three rotation arms and uh and such a good person that he was that uh you know you can't replace that with a young guy um you know we do have some older guys that have a chance to step in there but uh luckily we've got Landon Root coming back who I feel is one of the top pitchers in our league uh, top pitchers in the East Coast, uh, top pitchers in the country. And then we got Luke Giselle, who's been right there in the fire as well as a starter who, uh, you know, just goes in and battles and, and has a chance to, to, you know, always keep you in the game no matter what because he's going to be prepared and ready to go. But um, those two will, you know, be at the forefront of our rotation as experienced upperclassmen. And then, you know, we've got, you know, multiple uh, returning guys that I think can fill some of those roles. And then we've got some very, very good, talented, young freshmen and transfer arms that, uh, you know, I think will um, jump right in and be very good this year. And if not, be big time arms for us over the next two to three years. In addition to what you've got on the mound, there's some really intriguing offensive pieces coming back for you as well. You know, Cole Weiss has been such a good hitter and, um, you know, he's maybe not the toolsiest guys you've had other maybe guys with with some louder tools over the last few years. Uh, but what is it that makes Cole such a productive college hitter and, and, and such a big piece for for you guys in the lineup? Uh, he's just got better every year that he's been here. And uh, he's just a baseball player. Um, you know, he, you know what you're going to get every day he comes to the ballpark. Uh, he brings energy when it's game time and, and practice time. Uh, he don't get too high and too low if things are going good or bad. Um, but he just, uh, he's going to be solid in the field and play a very, very good third base. He's got a great internal clock, knows how uh, to, to make plays and, and, and just has that great baseball clock. Uh, and then from a hitting standpoint, you know, he can handle the bat well and he'll, uh, 
you know, just move the baseball. He'll get big clutch hits in big times of the game and when you need it. And, um, you know, he's just got better every year. Uh, he was drafted late by the Giants in 2019 draft, decided to come back. And then, you know, obviously last year uh, didn't play out and, you know, would have probably would have probably signed if he got a free agent opportunity, but um, didn't. So he's back for his uh, fifth year or COVID senior year, however you want to call it. And, you know, I'm excited for him. I think he's uh, a great college baseball player. And I think um, if we get a chance to play out this whole spring, he'll have another chance to play professional baseball at the end of this season. One guy who does stand out from a tool standpoint is obviously Noah Bridges in the outfield. You don't have to watch that guy for more than about 30 seconds to kind of go, whoa, okay. You know, this, this guy certainly got, got some tools here. What have you seen in, in his development? What are the next steps you, you'd like to see from him to, to just make him into a more complete player? Yeah, Noah's just kind of the prototypical uh, Seahawk player that we bring in. Uh, toolsy, athletic uh, has a has a chance to get better every year if he just keeps improving and working, and he's done that. You know, um, the big tool that stands out for everybody is his speed. I mean, I think he ran like a six two eight up at the Cape uh, at one of their um, pro days, and then you know at our last couple pro pro days, even this past fall, I think he ran right at a six three six three eight. So the speed plays. Uh, he knows how to steal bases. Um, the biggest thing with him is that, you know, from a hitting standpoint, uh, you know, uh, everybody and we all just wanted him to have a little bit better uh, bat-to-ball contact. You know, he's had a lot of strikeouts and with a fast guy, you kind of want him to be able to use that speed more and, and put it in play more. And he's done a better job every year of improving that. And he had a good fall. And, um, you know, when he does that, he can hit routine ground balls. And if he makes the shortstop move, one or two steps either way, then it's either going to be a bang-bang play at first or he's going to beat it out. Um, he's got sneaky power, which I think is going to come back in play as he gets older and more mature and, and gets into pro ball. And just from a defensive standpoint, he kind of patrols center field and he can cover the gaps. He's got a very, very strong arm and, uh, you know, just got a lot of tools. And I think a lot of it just comes down to being confident. And like I said, as he's played pretty much as a freshman to this point, he's got confident, more confident each year. And, you know, I'm just looking for him to have another big year. Last year was your first season as head coach. You went 11 and five in the abbreviated season. You had a, a big weekend at Kentucky where you swept uh, the Wildcats. You had beaten East Carolina at home on in what turned out to be your last game of the season. So it seems like a pretty successful season overall. How do you evaluate that? And how do you, what, what did you learn uh, in that first season as head coach? Well, uh, uh, evaluation wise, I thought we got off, you know, I'll just take you back to the start. We um, opened up with a couple of preseason tournaments here at, in Wilmington. The first weekend we had Bryant and Dayton. And I thought both of those teams were very good teams. And we ended up going three and one that weekend. Uh, we went down to Coastal, played a midweek game, or, and, and ended up losing a, a, you know, a good college baseball game. We had another weekend where we played uh, Bowling Green, Marshall, and was supposed to be Butler, but Butler couldn't come because we ended up playing Marshall and Bowling Green and again went three and one. Um, had a midweek.
NC State, which uh, you guys are up in that area. They, they, they had a very good club last year and got a lot of those guys back, and they, they beat the socks off of us and kind of, I thought, put us in our place and, and showed us some areas where we as a, as a team have to get a lot better. And you didn't know how we would uh, go to Kentucky following that midweek. And we went there and just basically, I thought, played just really what I call Seahawk baseball for three games. Had great pitching, great defense, some clutch hitting, and just I thought mentally were, were tougher than Kentucky that weekend. And I uh, was very proud of them. Came back, uh, played Memphis. Um, didn't play great for two games and then beat them on Sunday. And then the last game of the year was. Uh, one of the best college baseball games I've been around in a long time. 2-2 uh, ball game going into the bottom of the night. We get two guys on, and then we get a walk-off three-run homer from Matt Suggs. But I thought we were heading in the right direction. I thought we were very talented and uh, just needed to keep playing. Um, you know, for me as, as a head coach, what I learned, I, I just – I, I kind of felt once the season started, I was just there – uh, you know, supporting our guys. Uh, there's obviously times where as a coach, you got to make decisions, but I have a great staff here with Matt Myers and Chris Moore and, and Kelly Seacrease and Josh Stott and Nick Fight. And, you know, I know as assistant, uh, for us to be the best, um, I need to let those guys work. And that's, you know, a big thing for me as a head coach. I let them do their jobs. And, you know, we talk a lot about our thoughts and our plans, but once it gets to game time, that's for the players and we let those guys play and we got great leadership. So, um, you know, that that was big for me and just kind of more sitting back, evaluating more and, and letting our guys go and, and just let them know I'm there for them and, and, and make the decisions that a head coach needs to make. But, you know, I believe in letting the players get out there and have fun during the games. Teddy mentioned it earlier, but, you know, you came to the, the, the head coaching job having been an assistant under Mark Scaff for the better part of two decades. And mm-hmm. I'm curious, um, and I think maybe we see the benefits of that are being fairly obvious just in terms of familiarity, but I'm also curious if there were maybe some challenges that were involved with that and its unique situation being on staff for that long and taking over as a head coach. And I, I'm curious how you kind of look back on that as the pros and cons of that particular situation before you got into the big chair. Yeah, um, you know, I'll, I'll take a, a quick step further back. You know, I, I played at Campbell University and then was in pro ball for five years as a player. Um, right after pro ball, I didn't know if I wanted to go into coaching in college or professional, and I got an opportunity to go back to Campbell and start my college coaching. So I spent six years there at Campbell. Uh, I was very familiar with the program at that time, obviously being from there, so that helped allowing my feet to get wet. As a, as a college coach, and then got an opportunity to come to Wilmington um, in 2001, uh, spring of 2002. And, um, you know, just very fortunate. I worked under two coaches, Chip Smith at Campbell and Coach Scaff here at Wilmington that, uh, you know, allowed me to be who I was, allowed me to have a lot of responsibility as an assistant, allowed me to have a lot of say-so in our programs. And, you know, I'm, I'm so indebted for them to allow me that because it, it allowed me to make mistakes. And when I made mistakes, I learned from them. And then obviously being 18 years here as an assistant with Coach Scaff, um, we've had, you know, a great two decades, really. I mean, we've been in regionals 10 out of the last 15 years, uh, a lot of championships. I've developed a lot of players and just had great relationships. But 
you know, once you get past a certain point, I don't know when that point was, I can't say if it was year eight or year 10 or year 12, uh, you get very invested in, in what you've done in the area. And I love Wilmington. I love the people here. I love this program. Um, I've had some other inquiries and some other interviews and things like that uh, at other programs throughout the last 18 years where I had a chance to potentially move, uh, whether it be as an assistant or a couple head jobs that I, I got interviewed for. But um, all in all, you know, I, like I said, I had a lot invested here. Um, I knew this is what I wanted to do. Uh, if I had the choice was to take over when Coach Scaff uh, retired. Um, and I still think we've got a big, big ceiling to reach here. Uh, there's a lot of room for us to grow as a program. And that's what I want to do is keep moving us forward. And, you know, we've been in the regionals a lot. Uh, we just hadn't been able to break through and get that regional first regional win. But I think we're very close. And um, I'm looking forward to hopefully being in that leadership role to when we do do it, uh, get to the super regionals. And then, you know, our goal is to get to Omaha and win a national championship. Yeah, I mean, this program is maybe one of the best ones, if not the best one, to have not won a regional before. When you look at it, what do you think it takes to take that next step and, and to, to win a regional? Uh, it always takes luck. Um, it takes, uh, obviously, getting into the right uh, situation. Uh, you always would like to be able to host uh, because... I think about 75% of hosts make it to the super regional round, get out of get out of the regional. So we have to do a better job during the season of, of getting in a, a situation where potentially we can be a host. If we can't, you know, I think the route is we've got to have the depth and the ability to go in and, and be, have the pitching depth to handle three or four day regional environment. You know, the ones that we've been into where we've got into that championship round, which we've been into the championship round of it six out of the 10 times that we've been in the regionals, I feel like the just the, the little bit lack of pitching depth um, from a dominant guy that you can bring back on that fourth day to give you a chance to get into that sixth or seventh inning. We've always had, I feel like, very, very good offenses and guys that can put up runs, and you've got to hit if you can't shut them down. But you know, I think you just got to have a good combination of both. You got to be able to score runs. You got to be able to have some guys that can get into that fourth day on the mound and hold hold back a quality team because you're always going to be playing a good team at that point of the season. And you got to have a little luck and make plays. You know, uh, and we've been close, man. We were at South Carolina in the 2-0 role, and uh, just got to beat South Carolina once. They got to beat us twice, and that's tough to do there in their ballpark and with those fans and. You know, we had LSU uh, in a couple situations where, you know, uh, a couple balls bounce here and there. Uh, Could have gone a little bit different, but, you know, again, tough environments, but that's what we want to be in. I'd love for it to be here at Wilmington at some point, and that's what we're continuing to strive and to put ourselves in a situation where during the regular season, we play ourselves into a, a national-type ranking to where, um, you know, we have a chance to potentially be a host. And, and I think, obviously, if you're hosting, you got a lot better chance of moving forward. Your program just released its schedule uh, yesterday as we're recording this. Um, it's, it's a good schedule, which is no surprise given the history of the program and the schedules you guys put out 
year after year, but I'm curious your general philosophy in, in building this particular schedule. And then also if you guys had to jump through any hoops, given that, you know, every conference is maybe approaching things a little bit differently. And if, if you had to pivot at all with this schedule before you ended up releasing it. Yeah, I've pivoted a lot. I feel like a basketball player. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, nah, um, as all college coaches do, most of these schedules are done a year or two in advance. Uh, a lot of your non-conference stuff, sometimes three years in advance. Um, you know, we obviously um, have had to make some adjustments. Um, we had, we were going to Arizona and play out there uh, week week three and week four during our spring break. So that got uh, mixed back in the springtime. So we had to fill those weekends and then in June our league the CAA decided to implement uh, a little scheduling uh, model for all the Olympic sports outside of football and basketball and it basically eliminated us having a what we call a conference season uh, we could play conference teams but we wouldn't have conference games well kind of went that route of, of basically almost building an independent schedule um, from June till November, and then they decided, all right, we're going to have uh, at least 12 games as counted as conference, and then the rest you, you can still play. So it's just been a lot of twisting and turning. Luckily, I had already had teams on our schedule that were within what I call the North Carolina, Virginia, South Carolina area already on our schedule. Um, so. I felt like most of those games, if we get into any situation where it's budgets or travel or anything like that, most of these schools would be able to stick with what we've got. Um, we've had to make a few minor adjustments. Um, third week, we were going to go up to Campbell and play in a tournament with Campbell, Indiana, and Cincinnati. Well, when the Big Ten did what they did, that eliminated Cincinnati, or Indiana. And then two weeks ago, when the Big South determined they were going to go a 40 game conference season and start week three. Well, that was the week we were having a tournament. So that knocked us out of that. So I called up Cincinnati and said, if you guys still want to come south and just drive about an hour further, let's just play play four games here at Wilmington. And they're good with that. So it's just worked out. Um, we were able to schedule Dallas Baptist uh, two years ago, a home and home. This was the year that they were going to come here. We're going to go out to their place next year. Their situations, they still feel very good that they're going to be able to travel. So I'm confident that we'll be able to keep that series in April. And they're one of the top, heck, top 25 programs in the country um, every year. Just great, great program, great players. And, and then just the rest of the games are, you know, what I call, you know, real regional type games outside of the, games that we have scheduled with our conference teams. Uh, you got Virginia Commonwealth, you got Western Carolina, um, we've got App State coming in, we've got a series with UNC Greensboro, and then we've got a series at the end of the season with Charlotte, and then mix in our midweeks with NC State, North Carolina, East Carolina, and Coastal. Um, uh, you know, right now I'm at 50 games and Hopefully I can add, you know, three or four more when it's all said and done. If we happen to throw a fourth game on some of these weekends or potentially add a couple more midweeks, I'm just going to kind of look and see how the next couple weeks play out before we do anything uh, with a lot of changes. But feel pretty good about it. Um, obviously, 
Um, you guys know as well as um, as everybody else, things seem to have been changing about every day or every week over the last nine months. So uh, I hope we get to February 19th and this is the schedule that we have and we can go play it. No doubt about that. Plenty of uh, plenty of changes we've seen week to week. So unbelievable. It's uh, it's it's a crazy thing, you know. Just watching some of the football games get scheduled on the fly, basketball games. I'm sure we'll see that with baseball too. Yep, no doubt. And you know, again, I, I go back unless a lot of conferences start really kind of just going conference only, which some have, but you know, have left some non-conference stuff. We're in a great area in North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia, where you can play a lot of good quality Division One teams uh, within a decent drive. So I think that gives a lot of us uh, a lot of flexibility um, if 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 they don't go ahead and get locked into conference only and no non-conference games. So we'll see how it goes. Well, earlier this spring, when there was no baseball, one of the big things that was going on on ESPN was uh, was the last dance about Michael Jordan's and the Bulls run. Uh-huh. Uh, and you happened to play with, with Jordan during your professional baseball career. So what was it like, you know, watching the the documentary? And, and I know you got some more attention around all of that. What what was that like? And, and what was it like reflecting back on on your time in double A with with, uh, with Michael Jordan? Yeah. Um when I heard about the documentary coming out and, um, you know, I was excited because I did know that, uh, you know, there was going to be some of the baseball side of it. Didn't know how much, um, but I was, you know, I'm a big Michael fan. I was a Michael fan before uh, uh, the Birmingham Barons and that whole 94 experience. Uh, I was Chicago Bull fan. I would watch the Bulls play when I was in college at Campbell. We'd 7.30 every night the Bulls come on, we'd go, get by the TV and pull up WGN and watch the Bulls play and loved listening to the announce the starting lineup and all that kind of stuff. So that was big. So, you know, obviously time passed, I'm in pro ball. And then all of a sudden, you know, Michael's going to end up playing with us uh, in 94 in Birmingham. Um, You know, it was, uh, it's surreal because you go back and you're like, wow, you got the opportunity to spend six months with, at the time, the greatest athlete in the world, uh, still debatable for a lot of people. I have to talk to a lot of our players now that uh, are big LeBron fans and Kobe fans that, uh, you know, Michael was pretty good in basketball too. So we have a lot of good debates, but, uh, you know, just just spending that whole summer um, dealing with the media side of it, the crowds, um, just, you know, how we traveled and, and just all the little things. It was really different than, than the other three minor league seasons that I was involved in. But uh, it's something that I'll never, you know, regret being a part of. Um, you know, I might didn't play as much as I would have liked to being the fourth outfielder. But at that point in my career, I wasn't considered a prospect. So I kind of knew what my role was as a player. Um, and, you know, I think in the grand scheme of it, it helped me grow as a person. It helped me grow as a player. And it obviously gave me a lot of insight of what eventually was going to be was a coaching uh, position. So, uh, you know, it was great. Uh, I can write a book about a lot of things. I think uh, it was uh, very unique, um, but, um, you know, something that I always cherish and, and always kind of 
you just kind of look back and think like, wow, that was pretty cool to be part of that whole situation. So we will begin to wrap up here with uh, a question we ask all of our all of our guests on the show and we have since, uh, well, for most of the off season now, and that's asking our guests for their favorite sandwich. So uh, without further ado, uh, Randy Hood, please describe your favorite sandwich. Well, I will say the, uh, the pandemic has caused me not to go out to eat at lunch a lot with our staff like we used to. So it's saved me some money and probably <laughs> wait a little bit, but um, I, I've got a unique favorite because because of the pandemic, one of our favorite places, the South College Deli, um, shut down in the summertime. So that it stinks because of that whole situation. But they had a sandwich called the Beef on Weck. And it was basically a slow roasted Angus beef kind of prime rib shaved um, roast beef kind of sandwich that they pile it high on like a homemade Weck roll. And you would get your options or both of having either regular horseradish or creamy horseradish and then some au jus sauce to kind of dip it in. And they'd make these nice shaved homemade fries with some more good uh, homemade sauce for the fries and then have a drink with that. And uh, you couldn't beat it. But uh, I know they're not in play right now because of being shut down, but the beef on weck at the South College Deli by far probably one of the best sandwiches in the country i'm not i'm not lying to you outstanding yeah we uh we're gonna need to get something started here to get those guys back up and running because, <laughs> yeah, we're, uh, that... <laughs> we're, we need to get them a stimulus and help them get back going because uh uh it's had about 10 tables you could probably get about 25 people packed in there and they were constantly full with people standing outside all the time uh, yeah big staple here in Wilmington yeah let's uh let's get that a, a food truck if nothing else like let's let's do <laughs> let's do something here that's not that's too good to pass up might be a good idea I love places like that you know just to to go in find those those kinds of places in uh in a college town or, or really anywhere in the country everyone has mm -hmm. has a sandwich shop like that and uh it sounds like a a great sandwich that hopefully you can get back uh you know sometime here in the future yeah we're I'm hoping so uh We've got so many nice restaurants around Wilmington. The food and, and the locations are great. Like Midtown's kind of where the university is, and South College Deli is what they consider Midtown. Once you go down to the uh, the waterfront and the river, you got you know thirty to forty different restaurants, bars, things like that. Uh, the Fork and Cork and the Copper Penny are two outstanding places to go get something to eat, uh, whether it be burgers, sandwiches, or whatever. And then you have the beach side of it where you've got some restaurants and, and just awesome places to eat out there on the intercoastal waterway in the Wrightsville Beach area. Outstanding. So if uh, anyone is able to check out a UNCW <laughs> game this year, that's uh, got, you got plenty of places to choose from there. Uh, mm -hmm. Coach, just one final question here. And, you know, as you look towards this 21 season, I know everyone's excited just to get back out on the field. What's that going to mean to you uh, here on hopefully February 19 when you're when you're back out there with the team competing, uh, you know, for the first time in, in almost a year? Yeah, it's going to be special. Uh, it's something that, uh, you know, I'm really looking forward to. I'm, I'm looking forward for our players and our staff to just get back out there because you don't realize how much you miss those uh 
those bonding opportunities, those opportunities to, uh, you know, we work so hard uh, outside of the games to where the games are really special. And uh, I'm just, you know, it was special in the fall when we were able to get out and start practicing and inter-squadding. But, you know, just allowing the guys to get back out there and uh, and compete and to play for something, you know, that's that's what I want to see. I've told everybody, I, I don't know how the schedule and how the season's going to play out. All I want to do is play as many games as possible and give our chances, guys a chance to go out and compete and see where we're at at May, whether, you know, conference tournament or regionals or whatever it is. Um, I'm just, I just want to get out and give them a chance to go out and have fun and do what they came to school to do. And that's get a great education, but also play uh, really high level baseball. And uh, I'm excited. It's, it's been a, a weird, different time, but, uh, you know, we were able to, to get through the fall and, and, and do a great job. And I, I commend all our guys and our, our program and our, our staff for, you know, doing what we needed to to get through the fall, but we're just excited and looking forward to the spring. And I feel like we've got a really good club, and I'm I'm just wanting to have that opportunity because I feel like a lot was taken away from us last spring. Absolutely. Well, we'll be excited to see what the Seahawks have uh, this season. You know, going to be a fun, fun season. Hopefully, looking at that schedule, looking at the CAA. So we'll uh, we'll be following, and uh, you know, hopefully we we can get as much baseball as we can get in this spring. Well, again, certainly appreciate what uh, Baseball America, you guys, Teddy and Joe, do. And uh, anytime you want to come to Wilmington and need any suggestions, hit me up. And I'd love to see as many games as possible. Awesome. Thank you so much, Coach. All right, guys. Thank you all. Thank you again to Coach Randy Hood for joining us here on the Baseball America College podcast today. Joe, uh, Wilmington, always, always a good team. Always going to be in, in contention there in the CAA. That was that was true for a, a long time there under Coach Scalf. And now it looks like it's continuing under Randy Hood. And, you know, when you look at this roster, even without Zarian Sharp, a lot to be excited about, at least in my eyes. No doubt about that. Uh, now they'd love to have Zarian Sharp back. He, you know, is a, a pitcher I enjoy watching too, really successful. And he, he brings a little bit more upside, if you will. I mean, there's a reason, I think, why he was the guy who ended up getting a shot in pro ball, not to say guys like, you know, Luke Giselle or, or Landon Root didn't have their their opportunities and, and chances to do that. And it's a personal decision for each player, but he does have a little more upside maybe and it really kind of brought a little bit of electricity. But that said, and I think I made this point on, on Twitter back when I saw UNCW in October in one of their fall scrimmages that the rotation's still in really good shape with, with Roop and, and Giselle and that's going to get you a, that's a pretty good start when you're building a team in, in the CAA. And I think that that type of thing is why UNCW's floor is so high in the CAA. Every year you can just really bet on their floor. And the question is just how high their ceiling is going to be relative to that. Even the teams at UNCW that haven't been postseason teams have still been, you know, top portions of the, of the CAA. They're still going to be dangerous and look no further than that team that really had a p- pretty pedestrian regular season in Mark Scaff's last year, and they still made the postseason and then made some noise in the postseason. And so that, that just kind of shows you year to year how dangerous they could be. But I like the team a lot. Like I said, at the front of the rotation, I think when you compare it to the rest of the CAA is, is really, really good. And one thing I noted about them back in October is, is there a team that gives you a lot of looks on the mound? They're, they're really, there are some teams that kind of tend to recruit a type on the mound or 
you know, you've just got a bunch of guys throwing you know, 95, 96, which don't get me wrong. I'm sure if you gave those guys to UNCW, they'd say, come on down. But one thing that UNCW seems to do really well, particularly in this year, is just they've got guys who are sinker slider guys. They've got guys who are, you know, four seam up in the zone guys. They've got guys who are low slot. They've got guys who are throwing a couple different breaking balls. You know, they've got, you know, guys who, you know, mess with timing a little bit. It's a really varied pitching staff. And I think that's just from an aesthetic standpoint, I think that's kind of neat. You know, you maybe we're seeing less and less of that in, in baseball just generally. So I also think it's good news that we feel so good about their pitching as coach hood talked about that. It's a team that you kind of know what you're going to get year to year offensively. Speaking of high floors, their offense typically does. And they had those really good offenses back, I don't know, five or six years ago. And typically it's not that, but it's always a good offensive club. So, you know, they're going to hit. And the fact that we feel so good about their pitching, I think just really bodes well for what we're going to see in 2021. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, uh, you, you, we, we touched on a couple of the big offensive pieces. I think um, the Seahawks over the years have been a kind of consistent offensive team and they, they've had some, some pitchers as well. But if you look at their best pro prospects, they've, they've really been on the offensive side of the ball. And, but, but they, they do bring a lot of looks at you, like you said, and, you know, they've um, I, I think when you look at the pitching staff from last year, that was maybe a little bit more where the strength was. We didn't really get to see it play out. Maybe the, the offense would have come around a little bit more, but, you know, especially with sharp lead in the way it was, it was a really nice pitching team from what we had seen early on. So I'll be interested to see how that carries over into this spring. And then you look at the schedule they put together and obviously we went into that uh, with, with Randy and it, it's a, uh, it's a, it's an impressive schedule. Um, a lot of that is relying on, you know, teams in the area, like he said, and uh, you, you can certainly do that when you're in, you know, the central coast, uh, or I mean, uh, the Southern central coast of North Carolina, I suppose, but there are a lot of teams very reachable and, you know, even for Cincinnati, not that far of a trip. So, uh, you know, relatively speaking, but they, they've been able to put together, a nice schedule. Hopefully they're able to play all or most of it at least. And, um, you know, the Southern half of the CAA kind of sticking together for, for the season and the Northern half doing its thing, but, you know, some intriguing games to be had with Charleston there. Um, those are probably the two best teams in, in the Southern half of the CAA. I, I'll be very interested to see how all of that shakes out, but they're going to have some opportunities to impress even in a year where, you know, so much is going to be different and, uh, you know, they had to redo a, a whole lot of this, there are still going to be statement opportunities for the Seahawks. And I'll be interested to see if they're able to take advantage of those, those opportunities. Yeah, I will, uh, I will continue down this thread here momentarily, but just a quick reminder, as I was scrolling back in previous UNCW rosters, just a reminder, uh, as recently as 2018, their offense included Ryan Jeffers, who is already a big leaguer, Noah Bridges, who we've talked about being an insane athlete, maybe the fastest guy on the Cape, as Coach Hood talked about. Cole Weiss, really productive guy. And then Greg Jones, who was, I forget where he was drafted, but he early is the answer there. So, um, so yeah, they, the ceiling can be pretty high sometimes with UNCW. I kind of forgotten they had all of those guys at one time back in 2018. So anyway, quick uh, uh, little trail there. But, but yeah, the, the, the schedule – I have to admit, you know, I saw it and was, was came away pretty impressed. Like maybe it's just because my expectations are so 
I don't want to say low, but I've just been managing my expectations about what schedules are going to look like because of some of the limitations by conference and maybe teams not wanting to travel as much, whether for budgetary or for COVID precaution reasons, whatever it is, I've just kind of expected schedules to be 35 to 40% less interesting than we normally get. And while, you know, I'm sure that there were some games that, that he went into because coach Hood really, and I, I appreciate that he went into such depth about kind of what he went through scheduling wise. Well, I'm sure they would have preferred to get some of those games in some of those tournaments what they've got here is good. I'm with you. I think they're going to have a lot of chances to impress and, um, you know, a lot of chances to, to see kind of what they have compared to other good competition. And when you consider the CAA is one of the conferences that um, was a little more um, open to unique scheduling situations, as, as he talked about, um, this left me feeling pretty good about what we're going to see uh, from the rest of the CAA and, and what we're going to see generally, uh, because that was a conference that felt like they were, maybe being a little bit conservative with what they were expecting scheduling wise. And, and what we ended up with was a, a pretty good schedule of 50 games. And, and he said that he would like to add a few more if, if, if it comes to that. So certainly I will root for more games versus less. And the clear highlight here on the schedule, you know, is, is that Dallas Baptist series in April in Wilmington. That's, a, that's just a banger. Like if you're, if you're someone like me who kind of likes the, the high end mid majors and kind of roots for those programs to get opportunities to showcase themselves against each other, that's exactly the kind of series you're looking for there a DBU team that's comparably talented to UNCW, maybe a little bit more talented than UNCW. If I had to just uh, do a snap judgment there, but you know, going on the road to Wilmington, um, that's going to be a lot of fun when that series rolls around. Absolutely. Um, so we touched on it there a little bit about his background playing baseball with Michael Jordan. Joe, I believe on this podcast, we have already addressed how I did not watch the last dance. Uh, but I, I, as I recall, you did watch the last dance is, is, am I remembering this correctly? Uh, that is correct. I, I would have watched it in any event, uh, cause you know, you gotta remember that was at a time when we were pretty starved for content. There was no sports to speak of. And so it was just kind of something, some new appointment TV to have, which was really, really nice. But what really kind of, I was kind of thinking I'd just let them collect in my DVR and then maybe knock them out in a couple of sittings, but I ended up watching it pretty much live week to week because it, in, in an upset, my fiance got really into it. She's not really a basketball fan um, or a sports fan more generally, but she thought it was just really well done, which there's no argument there. I think there, there are some quibbles to be had with the fact that maybe um, it was a little more Jordan's point of view than, than maybe a true documentary would provide, but so maybe there are some maybe journalistic questions to be asked there, but I think in terms of just the cinematography and the score was great because the score was all of the time period. So that's kind of a little nerdy detail that I enjoyed. So I, I thought it was, thought it was um, really, really good. So yes, I, I did watch it. I would also recommend um, this, I guess to you, Teddy, as much as anybody else, um, Joel Anderson, a fellow Houstonian, Joel Anderson, by the way, um, of Slate, they, he's part of the Hang Up and Listen podcast, which has been going on forever and ever. He did an episode called The Last Last Dance, which is just like a little hour-long podcast on the wizard's ears for Jordan, which, of course, were conveniently left out of the Last Dance documentary. So I found that to be like an interesting little jaunt into that part of history, because while I was paying attention to sports when Jordan was playing on the wizards, I was not like super locked in and paying that much attention to sports quite yet. So I kind of remember it maybe a little bit differently than was reality. So that was kind of a nice history lesson for me. I'd, I'd recommend that as well. 
So how much baseball got talked about in the, in the last dance? It was pretty significant um, in the grand scheme of things, right? Like you never expected it to drive like, you know, 35% of the entirety of the program, but there was parts of a good portion of two different episodes that touched on baseball pretty heavily because one episode was kind of the, why is he doing this part of it, you know, and talked about his interest in baseball and more, I guess, more to the point, his dad's interest in baseball, which was driving a lot of it. And then there was another episode which featured, you know, Terry Francona, I guess, spoke for the, the documentary. So he was a big part of it. But there was really one whole episode that was had a lot of Jordan baseball highlights in it, which was kind of fun to see. So it's it was pretty significant. It was a, it was definitely a driving storyline of one plus episodes. And, and I assume a lot of Randy Hood highlights. Absolutely. Yeah, he was the real <laughs> the real star of those those highlights. Uh, yeah, Coach Hood and, the, and those. Yeah, and that'd be interesting to watch. I actually. I didn't know about Coach Hood's connection until after I watched that. And I think UNCW had tweeted something with Coach Hood talking about it or, or what have you. And I actually would like to go back and watch and see if, if Coach Hood is in any of those highlights. Maybe we, we could have asked him more directly if he saw himself in any of those, those old videos, because that would be kind of fun to know. But um, yeah, it, but it was, it was, it was kind of cool. And it's, 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 it's interesting that we, we never got to really see what the end result of Jordan playing baseball was because there are still kind of two schools of thought out there. They're the people that go like, you know, look at the numbers. He was a, he was a guy in his thirties who had never really hadn't picked up a bat seriously since, you know, he was a kid and, you know, he, he was just never going to be. And they're the people that say, look, this is Michael Jordan, the greatest athlete of this generation. And like you try to grab this bat and hit 200 in double a, you know, the fact that he hit 200 in double a is a suggestion that he could be a big leader. Cause what is he going to look like when he actually does baseball full time with all of his, with all of his being. And of course we never got to see that, but I, I do think it makes for an interesting little thought exercise. Absolutely. I, so we didn't ask uh, coach Hood this question, but Joe, I mean, Michael Jordan, the last dance specifically, but they, they spawned a lot of memes you got crying Jordan, which I assume is not in the documentary. You've got the the one where he's saying, and I took this personally. Uh, you got the one where he's pointing to the, the iPad. Uh, I mean, are, are, is there a standout MJ meme for you? I think it's the incredulous looking at the iPad, because I think there's a little versatility with that meme. The crying Jordan's a great one, but it's hard not to allow into the discussion about that the fact that, that one's just been around so long maybe it's a little played out you know maybe we've we've kind of reached the end of that one but i mean be- i want to go with that one just because it's it's like an og meme you know basically well, that like, i mean there, it's there a is hall that. of fame meme there is something to say for the historical artifact of it for sure but i, I like the ipad one because there's a little versatility to it where you can just have the meme of him looking at the ipad kind of incredulous or bemused or whatever word you'd like to use there you can also there's like the the, the second version of that, which is, you know, picture one is him looking at the iPad like that. And then picture two is somebody has Photoshopped something on the iPad that he's looking at. So you can kind of, you know, just superimpose whatever you want into his reaction that way. So there's a little versatility there that some of the, the others don't provide, but uh, all good. I, I am pro all good Jordan memes and certainly we've got plenty <laughs> to choose from. Absolutely. Uh, a little more to the point. You know, we touched on it there. UNCW's never made a super. And, you know, that they're kind of very upfront about the idea that they might be the best program to have never won a regional. 
and so Joe, you you and I were kind of thinking about this, and you asked like, okay, so who else is in that discussion? And you know, there's no good list of of this out there that Joe and I could find. Um, but San Diego State has has not made has not won a regional. Um, they they've got to be up there. South Alabama never made or, or never won a regional. Um, I think you mentioned San Diego. You mentioned Central Florida. Uh, both Jacksonville and Bethune Cookman have made a lot of appearances in regionals without advancing. There may be a cut below this, but I mean, there's some pretty decent programs out there um, that we were just able to find quickly here that that have not advanced past the regional round of the NCAA tournament. Obviously, it's a, it's a level of research that would be pretty difficult, especially <laughs> at this time of year when you and I have other priorities going on. Well, but... And there's there's also a very subjective idea behind sure. all of this. Like, you know, South Alabama very has, has this long history without doing it. Is that judged better than, you know, uh, you, know so, you mentioned San Diego had a, maybe a higher peak than some of these programs, but doesn't have the length. So I don't know how you go about judging that part of it, too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, but I would be interested to kind of see the most regional appearances without winning one. So if someone else, some enterprising person out there would like to do that for you, for us. Or maybe uh, next fall we'll do that as the top yeah, twenty-five. Maybe, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, maybe maybe we'll actually we'll actually endeavor to to do something like that. But certainly, if someone wants to do that work for us, be our guest. We we cannot pay you anything. Just FYI, I will draw you a poorly drawn uh, picture of a baseball player. Which, by the way, I've had a couple. So uh, just to repeat my offer from a few weeks ago, if you weren't with us. If you tweet or email me a picture of you listening to any Baseball America podcast in exchange, I will poorly draw a picture of a baseball player and send it to you. That's the deal. And I'm a terrible artist. So, uh, you know, be, you, you know, I, I apologize in advance for how horrific it is, but that's part of the joke. So far, I have done a, uh, I have done a Garrett Mitchell. I have also done a, uh, a Brad Bohannon. I got a request for Alabama right. coach Brad Bohannon. Um, so there, there have been. Did a, you draw uh, him as a coach, or did you draw him as a player? I drew, drew him as a coach. Um, it was a special request. So um, someone, someone asked specifically for that image. So uh, I drew that specifically. Uh, there was a specific image they sent me, so I, I sent that one. But uh, so him and Garrett Mitchell, I've done a couple, and boy, are they bad. So uh, <laughs> it has lived up to the expect because I haven't tried to draw anything in years, like because I'm terrible, right? So just doing this has been kind of fun because it reminds me like, Oh God, you are bad at this. So anyway, that, that still stands. I I've gotten off track here. What, what was I even? We're talking about best programs, uh, not oh, to have yes. won a regional. And I was going to say that, you know, the last few years have been kind of bad for this in terms of there have been a lot of like high end programs that have won regionals in the last decade for the first time, you know, Kent state, I'm pretty sure had not won a regional before it, it goes to Omaha. Um, you know, the, there, that that's one of the the great, you know, Midwestern programs. Frankly, um, Sam Houston, your alma mater, uh, got off the the Schneid uh, a few years ago. I don't know that historically they they stack up with a South Al maybe, but like they've got a pretty significant peak and you know have been pretty consistent here for a while. And um, you know, obviously they uh, they were able to win in Lubbock a few years ago. So you know, just a couple uh, like that, just just within the last last decade um you know have have made pretty significant breakthroughs yeah no doubt about that that the further we get away from um the sam winning the regional at lubbock kind of the more amazing it gets because no one goes and does that 
Like no yep. one, like Lubbock is where you like can't win in Lubbock. You can't win in Lubbock in the regular season, much less in the postseason. Yeah, that's just and like clearly that that same Houston team was very very talented, and and maybe we'll look back and we'll you know we look at that Tech team and you know obviously we're looking at it through the lens of a team that lost in regionals, but you know maybe we'll just maybe later with the the benefit of even more hindsight, well it'll be a little more obvious to us. But man, that's quite an accomplishment. They went out there and just won a regional in Lubbock. So yeah, the further we get, from, but you're right, we've kind of had some kind of fall by the wayside here and break through. As you mentioned, Sam Houston State, I thought about Northwestern State. Now they don't have the number of regional appearances because they're typically playing in a one-bid league and that obviously makes that kind of tough. But Northwestern State, you know, we've talked about the coaching lineage they have there. I mean, that's a program that's won a ton of games um, and hasn't broken through. So that that's another one to add. I think South Alabama versus, say, University of San Diego is really kind of hits at what you talked about, the subjective part of this, because – South Alabama really does have that multiple decades of just regional after regional after regional, especially during the the peak of Steve Kittrell's years there. I always say the way I would describe South Alabama's program, and I think we, I brought this up when we talked to Ethan Wilson earlier this offseason, that South Alabama, however good you think they have been historically, they're way better than you think they were. I mean, just for, for a period of time, you know, a couple decades ago, they were just as good as just about any mid-major out there. Um, and they had to have been on the cusp a number of, a number of times. So, but then San Diego, you mentioned it really high peak. I mean, they hosted a regional at one point, you know, they've had players, Chris Bryant, for example, who were on campus and they just never were quite able to get over that hump. And then obviously that the peak has since uh, subsided. So just two very different examples of two teams trying to accomplish the, the same thing there. I shouldn't forget Kentucky in uh, these these programs that got it done for the first time in the last decade. Somewhat shockingly, Kentucky had never won a regional um, until, uh, what was that, 17? Yeah, 17. Um, you know, when they, uh, they they went to Supers in, in Nick Mangione's first year. So there's another one. And then I, you know, half-jokingly, off-air, I, I told Joe Fordham is the answer, hearkening back to last week's discussion about Fordham. Uh, being the winningest program in all of all time, and you know, I mean, they haven't won a regional, and they're the winningest program of all time. So who's to say? Maybe it's the Rams. Yeah, what's going on there? Let's get let's get on it, Fordham. We got all these wins, nothing to show for it. It's uh, it's a hole in the resume. That, that's <laughs> so you know, it's uh, it's going to be an interesting year uh, down at Wilmington to put a bow on this. Um, you know, I. I I think we're going to be very interested to see how that all, how all of that shakes out. Uh, but it, it's a, it's a talented team and, you know, we're like, I, like I said, we're excited to see how, how they put it all together there uh, in Randy Hood's second season as head coach. So we, we appreciate him joining us here on the podcast and we appreciate you joining us here uh, as well this week. And, and just as a reminder, you can, if you are not subscribed to the Baseball America podcast, you can find us on all of your favorite podcasting apps, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us. And we appreciate everyone who, who does subscribe, rate, review, any any or all of that, really. Uh, it, it is uh, much appreciated on our end. We will be back here uh, next week with another edition of the Baseball America College podcast. Until then, you can find Joe and me on Twitter. I am at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And uh, there's plenty to read over at baseballamerica.com as we get ready for the 2021 season. 
Um, and we're, we're still in season preview or we're still in uh, magazine preview mode. So it's not quite making that, that stuff's not going to be online for another couple of weeks, but it is coming as, uh, as we all try and, uh, you know, get ready for, for that 2021 season. Uh, so again, thank you to Randy Hood for joining us here on the Baseball America College podcast presented by Rap Soto. Thank you all for listening. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next week on the Baseball America College podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.